welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is The Art of Teaching Engineering. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. John Morlock, who is an assistant professor of practice and the associate director for educational innovation and impact in Engineering Education Transformations Institute at University of Georgia. He oversees engineering faculty development programming, and his scholarship focuses on educational and instructional change. Well, John, welcome to our conversations. It's great to have you here today. And maybe we can start by providing to our listeners with a brief overview of the work of the Engineering Education Transformations Institute at University of Georgia, as well as your role and your research in it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So my name is John Morlock. I am the Associate Director for Educational Innovation and Impact at University of Georgia's Engineering Education Transformations Institute. That is a mouthful. Uh, so we abbreviate our institute to ET. So when I say ET, I'm referring to our institute. Um, so our, you can think of our institute as sort of a blend between an engineering education research department and an engineering education faculty development center. Um, so we have three tenure track faculty that all conduct engineering education research, as well as um, one director and two associate directors, of which I am one of them. Um, so and our directors and associate directors are all focused on more of the faculty development um, side, both in terms of research initiation and in terms of teaching and learning. I'm on the teaching and learning side. The goal of our institute is to build capacity for engineering education innovation and research in UGA's College of Engineering. And when I say build capacity, I'm referring to sort of building communities of people that are collectively ready to recognize new educational needs as they arise and respond to them effectively, which, you know, COVID-19 was a, a very big um, sudden educational need. So uh, our 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 capacity building efforts really paid off when COVID-19 hit. And we already had a lot of the learning communities and infrastructure there to for faculty to support each other, which minimized the amount of sort of direct support that we had to provide during that time. Though we still did do some specialized programming around um, around the pandemic and teaching mm -hmm. online. Um, so uh, we have uh, uh, the majority of our programming consists of, I would say, three major elements. The first is sort of learning communities, large and small. These our large communities take the form of, say, an engineering education forum that we do every month, which typically has around 30 to 40 uh, faculty, staff and graduate students around our college attend um, just to learn about new engineering or engineering education ideas and current topics in the field. Um, we also have faculty led peer mentoring groups, which include both sort of like these uh, people meeting over lunch just to talk about how things are going, the challenges they're facing and, you know, just catch up and uh, help each other out as well as faculty-led book clubs that um, use certain readings around teaching and learning to uh, spur on conversations around engineering education. And then finally, um, my other associate director, Nikki Sohutska, she leads our engineering education research incubator, where we help faculty take ideas that they have for uh, engineering education research, incubate them into something that can be studied, and eventually, uh, for many of them, turned into funded grant proposals. 
Um, and so those are sort of the main pillars of our faculty development work. I, I know I've been talking for a while now, um, but I, I do want to sort of talk about some of the things we did specifically around COVID-19, because I think that mm -hmm. will help us in our conversation today. So one of the major things that we did was we applied for a rapid grant to collect real-time data on how our system was doing during the pandemic, especially during those first few critical months as folks were transitioning to online learning. The reason that we did this was one of our major philosophies is that um, we try to root our operations in complex systems theory and principles for enacting change from within a system. And I say that because the main driving factor for this grant that we applied for was that rather than going in sort of gung-ho and giving people recommendations on what they should do based on what we thought were was appropriate, um, we wanted to get a, a sense of how the system was working when the pandemic happened. Like, what are people's experiences around the pandemic? What's working? What isn't? What what of value is already there? And what could be changed to create better experiences for everyone? And so we, once we got the grant, we used a, a, a data collection platform called SenseMaker to collect people's experiences in real time over the first six months of the pandemic. Um, what SenseMaker is, is it is a tool that collects mixed methods data around experiences that people have. What that actually looks like in practice is we ask people, tell us about something that really stuck in your mind that happened to you recently related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And they tell us a story, one paragraph or two paragraphs long, a, a nice short story encapsulating that experience they had. They give their story a title, and then they answer several quantitative questions around that story, um, and, and usually in the form of a triad. So we give them sort of a, a triangle with three different points. In this case, for example, um, one question was, what was uh, most of value in this story? And then the three points of the triangle were willingness to experiment, planning and efficiency, grit and perseverance. And then they would move this slider to the point in the triangle that they thought most encapsulated where their story lies. So if I said, well, my story involved a lot of grit and perseverance to get through, uh, a little bit of willingness to experiment because I had to try some new stuff, but planning and efficiency, I would, I would say that's not, that wasn't much of a factor. I would sort of take that slider and put it somewhere close to grit and perseverance, a little toward a willingness to experiment. What that allowed us to do as researchers was to look for patterns across quantitative responses. And then once we identified those patterns, we could dive deep into the stories that each person told for each of those data points and identify what are qualities of those stories that created positive or negative experiences. And then we used that to uh, author four reports addressed to our administrators, faculty, and students for recommendations uh, to improve their experience during the pandemic. And John, so uh, who you collected the data from? Are those the faculty members at University of Georgia who you worked with before? Uh, that's a really good question. I We collected data from all stakeholders in our college. So that includes faculty, staff, administrators, undergraduate students, graduate okay. students. It was open to anyone in the college, whether okay. you know employed or a student. And so that was one thing that we did during the pandemic. Uh, another major thing that we did um, was recently, as we, as you know, the vaccines are picking up and 
people, especially our university system, is optimistic that we'll be able to go back to in-person teaching in fall. We held a uh, an engineering education forum, which was a college-wide discussion of what we want the new normal to look like in our college mm-hmm. once we go back to in-person teaching. Um, and we it, that forum had really uh, was very well attended by sort of everyone in our college. We had graduate students, we had faculty, we had staff, and sort of everyone chimed in about what we want the new normal to look like. And there were some very interesting insights from that that I'm happy to talk about. And I want to go back a little bit to some of the reports you mentioned that uh, were produced as a result of the data collection that you just talked about. And, And we also will have actually links to those reports in our podcast for those interested. What were some of the major themes that came out of it? If you can just maybe briefly talk about that. Yeah, so we I would say each of the reports had its own sort of focus and flair to it. So we had two reports that were during that later half of the spring semester after COVID-19 had kicked in and everyone mm-hmm. was transitioning to online. That was, I would say, the, the, the biggest blitz of our work. We sort of collected very intensive data within a very short time frame and produced mm-hmm. two reports, one in the middle of that time and one at the end of it. Those were really focused on how, what sort of challenges are both our faculty and students facing, um, as mm-hmm. well as what can we do to help improve those experiences. Over the summer, the University System of Georgia announced that we were transitioning to hybrid learning in the fall. And you may remember there was a period during that first uh, COVID-19 summer where some universities were hesitant to add mask requirements. Um, And uh, the University System of Georgia was among those. And there were a lot of very vocal concerns about that hesitancy. And so Mm -hmm. a, a lot of the data in our third report, which was conducted over the summer, was really focused on that and the safety precautions that we were taking to make sure that the campus was safe for hybrid learning mm-hmm. in the fall. And then the fourth report, which was conducted during the fall, was really looking at the initial first few months of that hybrid learning and what what concerns people had, what challenges people had, and how, how we could solve them. So those were the, the, kind of the essences of the four reports. Um, each of them had different focuses in terms of the suggestions that we gave. For example, the the first two reports that were at the end of the spring semester when COVID-19 was happening were really focused on how do we enable faculty and students to get back the sense of connection that they had lost um, from transitioning from face-to-face to to the classroom. So, you know, students said that they felt that their learning was a lot more lonely. They didn't have study buddies. And so we recommended uh, messaging apps they could use to reach out to and stay connected to people that they had studied with before the pandemic started. Um, The uh, We also addressed some of the... uh, the logistical challenges with moving teaching and learning to online. So, for example, a lot of students said that their instructors were now posting videos online for them to watch outside of class, but their other assignments um, and homework hadn't lessened to accommodate that. So they felt like they were doing like 50 to 100 percent more work for their classes than they were before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. And so we um, one of our suggestions to faculty was to make sure that when you're putting stuff online for students to watch, that is homework. And that needs to be accounted for in terms of the amount of um, time you're asking them to spend on other assignments. And then, uh, especially as we were transitioning to the hybrid mode um, in the fall, a lot of faculty who 
a lot of faculty took very well to the online um once they got used to the online teaching, they took very well to it. And the transition to hybrid, I think, took a lot of people by surprise in terms of they now had the skills to either teach face-to-face or online and oh, had recognized the strengths of both mediums, but now mm-hmm. weren't really able to leverage either of them to their full potential because they had to address both at the same time. Um, and that was really getting in the way of the flow of both students and faculty from the data that we collected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our, one of our requests to administration was that they find a way to make, to reintroduce flexibility in decision making for faculty and students to help them find, to help them structure their activities in a way that worked productively for them because there really wasn't much agency in terms of teaching method. Everyone had to teach hybrid. You know, at, at the time we wrote it, I don't think we had fully grasped that this was sort of a, a system level issue, the university system level issue, and the administration kind of had their hands tied in that regard. So, uh, as we progressed later into that report, we also made suggestions of how we could improve transparency of communication uh, from the system level down to the faculty level to mm-hmm. make sure that everyone sort of understood why things were being done this way um, rather than just being told that they had to be done this way. John, uh, thank you. That was very detailed. I wanted to ask for the faculty that were new, I don't know if you engage with any new faculty but what was their transition to the online environment? Or did you have faculty that just immediately took to it, were willing to create these kinds of collaborative type experiences for their students, as well as the others? I'm sure there were some that struggled. But what was the, I guess, happy medium, if you will? So I heard two questions in that. Um, The first was around new faculty. Um, So I'll address that one first. So we actually did have one faculty member who was hired to our college and was teaching for the first time in the hybrid format uh, this past fall. And honestly, I think that faculty member had a way smoother transition than Mm -hmm. faculty who had to make the transition from in-person to um, to online. And I think there are a couple factors that go into that. The first was that they for faculty members who have been who had been teaching in person and had to transition their stuff online, they sort of had a, a, a body of materials that they had prepared for the course that suddenly they had to find a way to adapt it, which I think is a little bit harder um, especially in cases where you've built in student interaction in class around some of those materials right. than if you are designing them from scratch for an online or hybrid environment. And so this faculty member sort of came in as a blank slate and sort of saying, like, this is my first time teaching and I'm doing it online. And we were able to provide some really concrete tips of like, okay, here's how you can design your class from the ground up with this in mind. And he was able to do that very smoothly. And one thing I'll add is that I think having the faculty communities set up from our existing teaching and learning program really helped move those conversations forward in terms of helping people out. So we had um, we had already been doing those faculty led peer mentoring meetings. But during the pandemic, I also led online what we called community mentoring meetings, which was just places where anyone from the college could come in chat about challenges they were having and hear from other faculty members 
solutions that they had implemented. And this faculty member, was, the new faculty member, was a part of all of those community mentoring meetings and managed to glean a lot of useful information from our other faculty. For example, uh, several of our faculty experimented with assessments during the pandemic time. This was sort of a people who, you know, had been using traditional assessments for a long time and were curious about alternative assessment methods like peer assessment or um, oral exams or even just doing away with big exams and moving to like smaller, you know, a quiz every week rather than these big stressful exams. Um, and the pandemic was the perfect opportunity of, well, everything else is being shaken up. Why not try something new? And so several of our faculty members found that students responded really well to more frequent quizzes rather than big exams. So they were no less rigorous. It was just they were spread out more and students had a better idea of, you know, it it wasn't like one exam covering six topics. It was each exam covered one specific topic that was covered the previous week and they knew how to prepare for it. They knew how to, they didn't have to cram essentially. Um, that was very well received and that was one of the first things that our faculty suggested to this new faculty member who was starting up like, Take the stress off yourself in terms of proctoring these exams when you're um, online and just make it small, shorter quizzes where the quizzes are short enough that students don't have time to cheat, even if they wanted to, <laughs> rather than having to have these long exams and worry about proctoring and how can I stop students from looking up stuff online. Just adjust the exam itself and we don't have to worry about that. Um, Smart. I like that idea. Make it really fast <laughs> so they don't have time to cheat. That's funny. Um, so I, I hope that answered your first question, Nicole. It did. Thank you. Yeah. And I think we, we touched on the second one, too, in terms of what, if, if I heard you right, it was how did different, you know, some faculty adjusted well, some faculty sort of took a, a longer time to adjust. Um, yes. And I think that the only thing I have to add to that question is that I think the, the biggest adjustment that faculty had over COVID-19 was getting used to the software. Mm -hmm. So Zoom, um, making sure like by default, uh, all of Zoom's useful features are turned off, at least for us, like breakout rooms and um, the ability to record and the ability to do nonverbal feedback, all things that are really helpful in a classroom. And so a lot of our first, like those first few weeks of like emergency preparing for online was really me getting the word out about how to turn those features on, what they do and how to use them. Everything else our faculty communities sort of handled within themselves. Mm -hmm. Sure. Before the pandemic, it seems like that faculty didn't necessarily or didn't have a need to have any experience with online teaching, right? So it was really a new experience for everybody. For the most part, yes. Okay. Um, okay. The Several of our faculty had already been using flip learning approaches. So mm -hmm. using online videos and then during okay. class time was for problem solving. Those mm -hmm. faculty members had it very easy in terms of transitioning to online because they already had most of their online lectures and materials prepared. And then during the in-class time, they could focus on doing things like breakout rooms to help Mm -hmm. um, students solve problems for I would say about 15 to 20 percent of our faculty it was an easy transition they were already doing some online stuff for the rest it was a new experience mm -hmm. okay. and out of curiosity there's 15 20 percent of faculty members who were doing things were they doing it because of their own interest so I would say one of the nice things about 
leading faculty development programming that's focused on community building is that ideas tend to be contagious. And so we had a few faculty that were just, that came into UGA just really passionate about flip learning approaches and were using it. And so they would come to these meetings and talk about like, you know, they would hear people talk about, you know, their struggles, things they were doing. And they were like, oh, you know, with the flip learning approach, I don't really have any of that. You know, it's a lot smoother at transition. Students can ask questions about the lecture during class, but a lot of the time it's helping students through problems, which is really the core of the courses that a lot of us are teaching. And so that idea caught on very quickly among our faculty. We're also very lucky to have a strong Center for Teaching and Learning here. So my institute is at the college level. The Center for Teaching and Learning is at the university level, but they host a, an annual um, active learning summer institute um, where mm -hmm. faculty can come in with ideas for something they want to do in their classroom, the most popular being flipped learning. And they can get support through a six-week institute of how can I make this happen and what do I need to do to make this happen effectively? And so several of our engineering faculty have gone through that institute to improve their courses or implement more student interaction or out of class interaction. Um, and a lot of them took the flipped learning approach. So, I had a question about were there specific strategies or tips that through your center you were able to give to faculty with how to build these relationships with students. So trust, this idea, especially with the situation where new students just coming in, you know, it's easier when we made the transition, I think last spring, because some of the classes were already in person. So those relationships had already been fostered um, at the beginning of the semester. But when it went to hybrid with the new students, were there things that you suggested to your faculty, resources you provided, just how to help them navigate that new experience while also building these, what we know to be relationship-rich experiences for the students. So that's a really good question and an interesting one because in that new normal forum that I told you about that we conducted recently, mm -hmm. one of the comments that we had consensus around was that one of the benefits of the pandemic was that it required us to be intentional about creating authentic avenues to build trust and relationship with students. Mm -hmm. So um, some solutions that we came up with during the hybrid and online learning period was using apps that are built to facilitate communication, such as um, Slack, such as GroupMe, places where students are already gathering and talking to each other. Let's build those for our classes so that um, both students can interact with each other as part of the class, but also they have a line to you as a as a faculty member that outside of class that they don't that they, they lost once the in-person experience was gone because they couldn't just go to someone's office and say, hey, I want to chat with you. It was mm -hmm. they needed those formal um, avenues outside of class to build those relationships. And all of our faculty that started using those apps reported very positive experiences with them. Like students enjoyed having faculty there to respond to questions, to be able to, you know, just reach out to when students needed it. And one of the strong things that came out of that, what do we want the new normal to look like for them, was keeping those avenues there, those intentional methods of building relationships with students rather than just assuming it will happen because we're all in the same room together. Mm, that's um, a really good point. 
to add to that also, like I said, you know, adding and keeping those new avenues for communication, that's primarily a text-based, right? And we, you know, with our guests, we frequently ask this question about different types of learners, extroverts, introverts, and just wondering from your experience, do you think both students and faculty who could maybe associate a little bit more with one top or the other appreciate new modes of communication? Because I feel that sometimes in face-to-face, not everybody's comfortable to ask questions, whether they have some time to think and write and reflect later. Mm-hmm. So th- that's that's another really good question. I During our SenseMaker data, um, especially after we went hybrid, there were there were a mix of student responses. Um, students, some students said, you know, we're really happy that the university introduced some face-to-face learning back because we think that's an important part of the learning experience. Others said, I really wish I could just attend class from home because that's more comfortable for me. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I do think it really depended on the person, but there were some benefits of the new modes of communication that I think were universally well received. And the for the greatest example that comes to mind is office hours. So having office hours online virtually was a strongly positive experience from all the faculty and students that we heard from. And that's because it allowed new ways of interaction during office hours that you don't have in person. So Mm -hmm. as the faculty member is helping one student work through a problem over Zoom, they're sharing their screen with everyone who came to office hours. So it's not just, you know, the students who are clustered around the faculty that get the benefit. It's everyone who attended now gets to see how the faculty member would go about um, helping a student solve that issue, which creates more conversation around office hours. It's like, you know, as I'm watching the faculty member address someone else's issues, I can chime in and say, so, hey, why did you do it that way? I don't get that. And that's something that, you know, it's it's not easy to have those kinds of group interactions in individual office hours where it's people clustered around a faculty member or more commonly I've seen waiting in line to talk to a faculty member. <laughs> And so, yes, some students will prefer things to be back in person. Some students will wish online were still a thing. But our faculty members recognize that there is value to some of the online interactions we had and don't want to abandon that. So do you think now faculty have developed the skill, if that's the right term, in making their courses both flexible and adaptable, should we maintain this hybrid situation or is it natural to just fall back on the thing that they used to do should things go back face-to-face? So of the faculty members that have that I've interacted with frequently over the past year, mm-hmm. I think there's recognition that the transition to working from home and the ability to work from home has sort of been acknowledged in industrial settings now, mm-hmm. and that's unlikely to go away. It's not like an industry will just forget about the fact that, you know, people can work from home now. It's when it's more convenient for people to work from home, that's a skill that they'll need to exercise. Um, right. And it would be kind of disingenuous to our students to do away with that skill in higher education. Um, a lot of our faculty have expressed that um, that concern of, you know, it 
we want students to continue developing these skills and being able to communicate from a virtual setting, being able to give virtual presentations, being able to have meaningful conversations in a virtual space, which is very different from an in-person space. Like only one person can talk at a time in a virtual space, whereas, you know, we can have these sort of side conversations in different groups in person. Mm -hmm. um, and so many of our faculty have acknowledged that we don't want to just pretend this never happened and go back to the way things were. Like this is a skill that we have now and we can pass on to students, um, right. the ability to, to work through virtual spaces. Obviously, the last year was a big, major disruptor in how we think about education and what we need to do. So if moving, moving in the future, again, pandemic is not a concern. What do you envision is this kind of close to an ideal learning teaching situation in engineering disciplines? What are the elements? Is that the hybrid form? Is it completely face-to-face? -face? You know, what elements we can bring from this experience? And I think you talk about some of those things yeah. already. So mm -hmm. I, I really like this question. I think one of the major lessons that we learned from hybrid learning is that it is not the ideal way to teach in either medium. So I mentioned earlier that it requires faculty to split their attention between the in-person folks and the online folks. And in-person teaching and online teaching both have very different affordances, but by trying to make the experience as comparable as possible across both mediums, we can't really leverage the strengths of either of them. And so I think the ideal situation in moving forward when we no longer have the mandate to teach hybrid would be to have more conscious decision making about what form of teaching is most appropriate for what I want to do. One thing that I hope catches on and sticks is having student access to materials outside of class. So things like recorded lectures that they can come back to. That was very helpful for students who wanted to you know, go back and view things as they were studying or wanted to review their notes. And I think an ideal situation would be faculty being more explicit about understanding student needs outside of the immediate in-person classroom environment, like those, uh, the provision of those materials outside of class. It would be for classes that have a strong focus on building communication skills. Um, for a lot of places, that's first-year engineering courses, but it could also be um, courses specifically designed around engineering communication, which is what we have here at UGA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think those courses should absolutely include virtual um, presentations as a skill that students can build. I think a really big point is that we now have the skills to provide attending class via Zoom as a reasonable accommodation for students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is an accessibility issue that one of the, let me back up a bit. When we conducted our first round of data collection on SenseMaker, this was right as um, the university decided that students wouldn't be coming back to campus after spring break. One of the stories that stands out most to me of all that we collected was one student who said, I have mobility issues. Getting around campus to try and get to class in 15 minutes every day is a major inhibitor to my mm -hmm. daily experience. Um, mm -hmm. And going to this environment where I can just turn on my computer and be in class is best case scenario for me. And I hope that as the pandemic winds down, you know, when we were all optimistic back then that the pandemic would be done in a few months, 
when the pandemic winds down, I hope this is still an option for me. And we have the skills now to make that an option. And I, I sincerely hope that as we move forward, more faculty will consider that a reasonable accommodation for students who have a hard time getting to class in person. If there were one thing that I hope we take away from this pandemic, it is using the skills we have to make that accommodation. Um, because I think that is an important accessibility issue that has been poorly addressed um, in, mm-hmm. in higher education in general. Mm-hmm. I particularly like what you said, John, earlier about faculty having to be intentional about the design, the assessment, the type of relationships they build, and that this is something we should be careful that we don't leave behind once we go back to you know, 50, 60, 300, how many of our students sitting in the classroom. But I want to talk a little bit more, if you will, about assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know engineering tends to be like these high stakes tests and most of them are multiple choice because you have so many students and it has to be graded through Scantron. I guess in this time with the different quizzes and different approaches, approaches that faculty use like if you had to give you know faculty member how many ever points for how they can design assessments during this time taking into consideration psychological toll or whatever what would be your your um, recommendations my number one recommendation would be um, moving away from high stakes exams that cover a lot of topics to weekly quizzes that cover smaller topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I That's an approach that I didn't have any feelings about one way or the other when the pandemic started, but enough of our faculty have tried it out and reported such positive experiences from it, from both their perspective and the student perspective, that it's that's, that's a, a tip I give everyone nowadays, whether they're mm-hmm. teaching hybrid or not. Um, it, it's, it helps take the edge off students in terms of studying for exams. It helps you as a faculty member get a better bead for how students are doing in a course um, Mm -hmm. because you get a weekly check-in, not just a every few months check-in or every few weeks check-in. And just in general, it's paradoxically our faculty members who have done this approach have stated that they do less time grading using that approach than when they have these big exams because it's it's they've built it into part of their weekly routine. They know how they structure their their weekly quizzes so that after they do it the first few times, it just becomes sort of uh, they can go on autopilot as they're going through grading. It's it's been a positive experience in every regard that I can think of. Um, mm-hmm. That would be my biggest suggestion, um, and I think it's applicable whether you're doing online teaching, hybrid teaching, in-person teaching. Um, it does take a little more class time than doing an exam, but I think the insights that the benefits and insights you get from that approach outweigh the the small loss of time every week um, mm-hmm. that the approach requires. So I'll tell you one sort of one faculty member that we had got really experimental with their assessment over COVID. They decided to move entirely to oral exams um, over Zoom. Mm -hmm. This was for a statics course. So they would have rather than, you know, each student, um, you know, getting a typical statics exam where they would go through five to ten problems. They had 
they would come into the into the Zoom room and the professor would say, here's your problem. I want to watch you solve it. And they would be able, and they asked students as they went along to sort of think aloud as they did it and walk through them solving it. And it turned out that it wasn't a great approach in terms of assessment. It was very hard for the faculty member to provide a grade to that in a way that students um, were satisfied with to the point that they wouldn't argue grades um, with the faculty member. But they did say that through doing that procedure, they became a better teacher because they better understood how students thought through problems and that were able to identify both their own expert blind spots in terms of how students were thinking through these, as well as common misconceptions that students had in different kinds of problems. And so he was like, the faculty member did this, said, I would not recommend this to anyone as an assessment approach, but I would recommend it to folks who are either new to teaching or who have taught for a while and sort of are like numb to student experiences after a certain time. This is a great way to sort of get snapped back to reality of what are, what is going through students' heads as they're doing the problems I'm asking them to. And that's just really good for improving teaching overall. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that was really directly related to your question, but I thought it was an interesting case. And John also was just kind of wondering, moving forward, moving to the new normal, whatever that will be, what the role of faculty support should be to help the community of instructors grow and, you know, embrace new ideas about learning, uh, what this interaction should be like. What advice would you have for other centers, institutes who support, say, engineering faculty? Good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so our our philosophy as a center has always been let's help faculty become the best versions of themselves that they can be. Um, so we don't try to push any particular evidence-based teaching practices. Um, we try and get people interested in talking about engineering education and then finding, helping them find the practices that work well for them, each individual faculty member. And by having it be a community-based approach where our, our job as a leadership team is, you know, me as an associate director, my job is not to do workshops or, um, you know, be the expert in this space. It is to, uh, I, I like to consider us as energy sources. Our job is to provide the structure, the space, the organization for faculty to get together as communities and help each other answer these questions, um, to help people have conversations that get them excited about engineering education. And then when they're curious we can sort of point them in the right direction for where they've expressed they want to go. One great example of how that's worked for us is um, the year after I came here as an associate director, which was um, 2019, faculty said, we asked faculty, what do you want to learn more about? And they said, well, you know, we've got, you know, we, we've had these conversations about engineering education and every now and then I hear Joe or Nikki, who are the other two directors, mm -hmm. um, I hear them talk about, you know, these learning theories that inform what they do or how they talk about things. I want to learn more about learning theories. Mm -hmm. And that's something that before our institute existed, when Joe and Nikki formed the institute, if they would have asked faculty, hey, you want to learn about learning theories? They would have probably been like, <laughs> no, thanks, we're good. Um, <laughs> 
But now that we've had these conversations and gotten people interested enough in engineering education in general, they had that interest. And we were able to offer a faculty learning community on different um, theories of learning and how those impact educational practice. Um, and that's something that we, was a really cool experience. We didn't think that would happen, but it was uh, it did. And so to directly answer your question, the two major points I would give folks in terms of interacting with faculty is make it a community oriented approach where faculty can support each other rather than us mm -hmm. thinking about our centers purely as supporting faculty. Our job is to help them support each other as well as um be responsive to faculty needs as faculty express things that they want to learn. Our job is to help them learn it and become the versions of themselves that they want to be. The faculty member comes in saying, I really love lecturing. I'm a, a, students have given me really good feedback on my lectures. So that's where I want to go. And I want to learn, you know, how I can lecture even better. Absolutely. We're happy to help you with that. There's a ton of resources out there on how to lecture effectively um, based on what we know about how students learn. So rather than trying to say like, well, maybe we should move away from lecture and incorporate more interactive approaches, it's like, okay, this is awesome. Someone knows what they're passionate about. They want to become better. Let's help them do that. And that's sort of our philosophy. And it, it, it worked out really well for us, especially as the pandemic came along and those existing community supports were there to help faculty become the best versions of their online teaching selves. I really like that. We so frequently talk about student learning and the theories of learning and what's really best, but sometimes we forget about the styles of teaching of the instructors and everybody's mm -hmm. different. Um, and just like we talked about introvert, extrovert, everybody has their own strengths or weaknesses. So it's the question, can the instructor deliver something that maybe is not a good fit for them? So mm -hmm. figuring out what works the best, like you said, for somebody, it might be lecturing. For somebody else, it might be a little bit more focused on students' group work. You know, who knows? It's all different. But sure. kind of having that as a starting point and making it more personalized to the instructor is is really cool. I teach our graduate student our graduate teaching assistant course. I teach graduate teaching assistants how to teach, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I always introduce that course is teaching is an art, but learning is a science. The way that you teach is going to be specific to any individual person, and I would not encourage anyone to just copy verbatim the way someone else teaches. But there are things that we know for certain about how students learn and the ways that we can support student learning. And by incorporating that with the way you like to teach, you both become a better artist as a teacher and also support the science of student learning by making sure that you're incorporating those ideas into the way that you teach. So I'm a big fan of supporting diversity in mm -hmm. teaching approaches with mm -hmm. the caveat that we have a lot of knowledge about how to support student learning that needs to be considered when developing those approaches. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Absolutely. Well, um, that was great. Yes, thank you, John. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope this was what you had in mind. I was really excited that you invited me to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a really good experience. 